Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Alice Bishop. Alice is a Victorian writer whose work has been featured in the likes of Mianjin, VoiceWorks and Griffith Review, amongst many others. And today she's joining me to discuss her new collection of short stories, A Constant Hum. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to land, stolen land that was never ceded. The final draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing and literary culture, as featured on 2SER, and the Great Conversations podcast is a chance to hear more of these discussions. A Constant Hum is a collection of stories exploring the aftermath of a bushfire. Across nearly 50 stories, the collection looks at the many ways we try to understand and move forward when catastrophic events occur. The stories are visceral and sensory, opening up a world that the average reader may never experience, but one that is at the heart of sense of community and our humanity. Join me as I speak with Alice Bishop and discover a constant hum. I'm joined on the line by Alice Bishop. Alice is a Victorian author. Her short stories and essays have been published in Mianjin, Southerly, The Griffith Review, uh, and many more. And we are here to discuss her short story collection, A Constant Hum. Alice, first of all, let me welcome you to Final Draft. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for having me. I feel very lucky to be on the program. Look, it's, it is an absolute pleasure um, because A Constant Hum is a, is a collection I confessed off-air that has really moved me. It's it's a collection of stories that grapple with the aftermath of bushfire. And there's this extraordinary range and feeling in the nearly 50 stories in the collection. And I think it's, I think it's beyond me to offer some sort of pithy synopsis of what the book is. Um, although I really hope our conversation will reveal some in- insights. I am interested, though, in how you introduce this collection to people. Well, thank you for your praise. Um, um, I'm glad it... it- it affected you. I think I tend to introduce this collection. Um, I do frame it with the idea that it came out of Black Saturday, but I think the fire itself is a bit of a through line for the collection, and the collection's about a lot more than just um, the bushfires of, of Black Saturday. Um, and I kind of do introduce the collection, though, about um, using the kind of the fire as that framework. So I started writing the collection when I was. Um, I think 25 in 2012, and um, I've been working on it pretty constantly through throughout the last seven or eight years. And um, and I feel I feel like it's been a long time coming, but um, I've just been really lucky to be working with text um, in the last year or so, and really shaping the collection into into what it is today. And um, it definitely looks much different um, to what it was when I submitted it. <laughs> so that's the beauty of a, of a brilliant editor and a, a great publishing house. But um, but yeah, so yeah, so it's definitely a book about about the aftermath of, of bushfire. But um, again, it's about a lot more than that as well. And I think, I mean, David Winter's your editor, isn't he? He is. He's a fantastic editor. Let's, yeah, let's give him a shout-out. He's a great okay. friend of the show. And, and okay. has, we have regular, David and I have regular chats on Final Draft, so I'm happy to oh, give amazing. him a shout-out. Yeah, yeah. He deserves a shout-out. He's, he's, yeah. So, so um, A Constant Hum, it was originally... Um, uh, commended in the Premier's Awards as an unpublished manuscript back in 2015. And um, I think it was only 12,000 or 15,000 words then. And I um, I um, was contacted by the brilliant Elena, who works at Text as well. And um, and we kind of kept in contact over the over the few years. And then um, I finally 
um, we made we made we find um, I don't know maybe a year or eighteen months ago when um, it's gone from I think twelve thousand words to ninety thousand words um, back to seventy thousand words and then finally it's about fifty thousand words now and um, so it's been a really long process but um, but to to be working with an editor that really gets um, what you want to do with the book and um, has so much um, respect for kind of having it be a bit more nuanced and a bit more subtle rather than, you know, I think we were talking a bit off air as well about how um, the kind of the sensationalist kind of coverage of bushfire and stuff can kind of hijack the kind of more quieter stories. And I've definitely felt very supported through text that that they didn't want to just kind of market it in that sense. Mm. Um, and um, I think that's why it's such a special book now. And um, I, I really couldn't imagine working with a different editor. Yeah, they yeah. would have been brilliant. So. Yeah, and, and look, the first thing that struck me actually going into the book is that this is a topic that through media and discussion and even through history, much of Australia might think that they have some idea about we certainly have a thirst for understanding, as you know, we can see through the recent success of Chloe Hooper's The Arsonist mm-hmm. Testifies. But as I read the collection, uh, I realised there are these intricacies and details beyond what I could ever imagine. And I, I wanted to know what sort of understanding did you want to give readers or what hopes did you have for the readers coming to a constant hum? It's funny. It, it, it kind of started not necessarily as a book purely about Black Saturday aftermath in the fact that I was writing a lot of stuff about relationships, a lot of stuff about the landscape, a lot of stuff about um, the place I grew up in, um, which is called Christmas Hills, which um, uh, was raised by Black Saturday and our house was raised by Black Saturday. But I was kind of writing all of these stories and even when I was going overseas and writing stories overseas, it kind of... It took me a while to realize that was what I was really writing about, and I think I'd started writing um, A Constant Hum in 2009 um, when we went back to the house and there was nothing left. And I think so much of writing is you think writing is, you know, putting pen to paper or, or being on your laptop, but you're really just doing it in your head, like, throughout the years and throughout the months and weeks and days. And um, I think I think this book has come through so many years of thinking about the fires in different ways and thinking about natural disasters around the world and mm-hmm. and thinking and kind of you know it was years after the fact that little things just kept popping up in our community and small struggles and whether it's post-traumatic stress or whether it's um you know domestic violence domestic violence which kind of flourishes after natural disaster and all these different kind of things that kind of permeate life and I really wanted to kind of give those um, those issues a bit of a bit of space and I think I think with climate change and, and you know these natural disasters are only going to keep happening um, more and more and more unfortunately I think it's really important to kind of focus on the kind of lingering aftermath rather than the kind of direct whether it's the first few days first few weeks first anniversary I think um, I mean my family are okay and I'm okay but there are people that and he's on, you know, they're, they're not okay. And mm. I kind of wanted to kind of explore that a little bit more through through fiction. The fire itself is, is, is a moment in history, but those stories those stories have antecedents and those stories are still going very much, it sounds like what definitely, you're saying. Definitely, mm. definitely, definitely. And I think, um, 
I think it, it would be the same for, for disasters around the world, you know, um, whether it's a flood or a hurricane or a tsunami. If you think of Fukushima and you think about, you know, there was 173 or 180 people um, killed in Black Saturday. But if you think about the scale of, of the Fukushima event and the stories that kind of, the ripple effect of stories that come across so many families and friendships and, and relationships and and it's it's kind of it's it's really hard to kind of grapple with that and mm. I I wanted to kind of capture my community's stories in a small way and I won't have captured all of the stories by any means but um, and another thing I was really conscious of is is kind of capturing um, women's stories kids stories. You know, there are plenty of men's stories in there too, mm. but um, stories that aren't, aren't as covered as widely, and they are covered in the media sometimes, but just not as widely as the kind of stories of the, the kind of, you know, um, emergency workers and all different kinds of people that are affected. Yeah, I was interested in what you said there about the way there is there is a sort of international um, mm. ability to understand this. And, it, I mean, as we're talking... There is mm-hmm. an event, if not many events around the world that are, are, are raising um, communities and, and harming lives. And mm. I was really struck that in your, in your acknowledgements at the end of the book, you make mention of, of refugees everywhere, people like you and me who've lost a home, often so much more. And throughout A Constant Hum, I found your recurring reflections of the ways that we try and that we fail, perhaps, to appreciate the trauma of, of another person's loss. Mm. I wondered what your thoughts were on the ways, as a country, we try and deal with traumatic loss, say, an event like the Black Saturday uh, bushfires, mm. but then also how this can look so different depending on the, the different circumstances, say, for people fleeing trauma overseas. Yeah, I think um, I'm personally, I think probably like yourself and probably like so many listeners, so disappointed in um, in our country's response to to helping people who are dealing with similar situations across across the world, and, and they are refugees. And I think, um, you know, I remember after Black Saturday, it was probably I don't know, maybe it was 2011, and there were some big floods overseas, and um, I was I was with my dad at home, and he was we were watching the news, and there were just you know rows and rows and rows of people fleeing fleeing flood with those kind of, you know, those big bags that are kind of um, red and blue and white striped. And Mm, they had all their belongings in one of those bags. And I remember Dad looked at me and he was just like, just shocked and just the horror because we'd been through what it was like to lose a home, but we had the support of insurance companies. We had, you know, a community, the community kind of coming together on a national sense because it was kind of, you know, Australia's, worst recorded natural disaster and I kind of I think we we really like to kind of make this kind of big deal about heroism in this country and about you know the community how we band together and there's definitely truth in that like there's so much truth in that I could speak about so many amazing experiences that happened to our family after the fires that you know I would cry talking about but equally there are a lot of really difficult experiences too, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape, um, a lot of um, bitterness in the community as well, <clears throat> excuse me, and 
I think that also reflects how close how closed off we are as a nation and how how we will cover stories of people who look like us overseas who live in similar you know um, cultural ways but there are just so many natural disasters that fly under the radar because because we are quite a backwards country in that sense and and I think um, you know if I imagine if I was fleeing a natural disaster which there'll be many many more to come that's so linked in with the with the refugee narrative and um, it, it really needs to change and um, that's why I kind of I put that in there too just because it's something I think about a lot and something that yeah it's not working in this country I also got through the through the stories an idea that perhaps there is there is a limit to compassion that is really artificial and that at, at some point perhaps people that are outside the event start to think well when is when is enough enough and we fail mm-hmm. to appreciate the very the very human story that we mentioned earlier is going to reverberate through years if not decades it's sort of well uh, to, to, to be really really crass and boil it down there's sort mm-hmm. of a why can't you just be happy to be alive type of uh, sure. failure of compassion sure and I think that that's something that's just just human and I think mm-hmm. whether it's whether you lose a you know gosh touch, touch wood I haven't lost anyone close to me but if you mm-hmm. lose a parent or you lose a grandparent or you know you there's I'm always reading those stories too or essays where it's like you know someone dies and you go through those anniversaries of you know it's a week or a month or a year and then there's that real sense of loss that the world keeps turning and it has to keep turning I, I think you know it's it's impossible to dwell on everything forever and and you have to move on but it's more of a just how do you grapple with with that if you are still struggling and do we as a culture maybe not talk about that enough and um, we're talking about it more help, especially with kind of the gendered roles of, um, you know, after after bushfire of men, you know, getting on with things and women being in caring roles and not being able to talk about their feelings because they're supporting men in the community. And I think I can see both sides and, I, and I, I'm definitely, um, that, that's kind of something I guess I wanted to explore as well in the book. Yeah, and you've you've really beautifully segued me here because I mm-hmm. I want to give the reader some experience of the stories. As I mentioned, there's there's some nearly fifty stories in a constant hum, and from what you were just talking about there, especially the gendered roles, I wanted to bring us to Kangaroo Paw, which appears uh, sort of in the second half of the collection. In the uh, the, the the collection is split mm-hmm. into sort of three books, and this is in the third book. Uh, and I was really interested in the ways that you you represent these binary ideas of gender that seem to flare up around catastrophe. Who is going to be the defender? Who's a nurturer? Who's a rebuilder? Uh, in Kangaroo Paw, you highlight this through the experience of a woman in the country fire authority. And I wondered what this experience of danger can and tragedy can teach us about these roles that we perhaps sometimes artificially try and create. Yeah, I was, I was to be frank, I was a little bit hesitant to touch too much on the CFA in the book because I know it's a quite a political issue and, and there are some brilliant, um, you know, people working in the CFA, but it's also been quite plagued by bullying and um, a lot of kind of political stuff recently. But um, uh, I was, I've, 
really been grateful over the past few years to be working closely with um, Jonathan Green from The Engine. He's really encouraged me to write more non-fiction. And I wrote an essay from The Engine. I think it, I think it was 2016 called Heroic Men and Helpful Women. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really about the that when when something as huge as 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 um, the bushfires of Black Saturday comes through, that kind of offers this really stripped back environment where kind of outdated gender roles seem to sprout up. And well, I mean, they might sprout up, but they're also quite prevalent, I think, as well. Still, even though we consider us that we've made lots of changes. And um, in Kangaroo Poor, I was I was kind of really. I was thinking about kind of my own experience moving through the world as a woman as well in in all different scenarios and how there's a lot more pressure on women to look a certain way, to be a certain way. Um, And the dangers sometimes of of being a woman in the workplace and um, especially such a masculine workplace as working in emergency services. And I know there's a lot of work being done in that space to change that, but um, I was really interested in that. And then there was the other the added element of her being pregnant throughout it and dealing with that in a very male, masculine um, um, workplace. And, um, yeah, I think, I think you know, after Black Saturday, it, it, was, it was interesting, I guess interesting is one word, to watch, watch the news and just see male heroism really celebrated and, um, and women being shown you know, making sandwiches for the CFA or huddled in dams and mm-hmm. and and men standing on the top of the houses with, you know, a garden hose and in their thongs. And, and that in itself is a really dangerous narrative for both sexes because, you know, I think the death toll after Black Saturday was... Um, it, there was a lot more men, I think, um, I read somewhere, but um, it's just that false sense of, of man versus bush and you can... You can protect your your house and your belongings and all of that stuff that's so linked into your self self worth um, as a as a man in those traditional gender roles. I really but, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, but I was just going to say, but when um you know when it, when the bushfire has the heat of two Hiroshima bombs, you know you you can't. There's nothing you can do in that situation to to defend. So I am um, yeah. The in in kangaroo poor the. It's such a an uncomfortable for a reader, especially for myself. I'm a cis white male reader mm. to to see how embodied Chloe's experience is through kangaroo paw and the way that men are able to to sort of leverage this. It seems almost this really benign power. If you brought it to their attention, they probably wouldn't be conscious that they were doing it. But to make her feel so embodied, like she is just a physicality that is subject to their stare. Um, I also, what you were just saying there about the roles, the, the, what happens in Kangaroo Port with Chloe as a member of the Country Fire Authority is, um, v- versus that stereotype you described is very much sort of counterpointed in, in Sticks, but then also in Stay, Go, where you have a young girl recalling at one point a memory of seeing a, a female firefighter and, and what that meant to her and... And then a, 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 a completely reversed role where you've got a man trying to get his wife into the car. She wants to stay. Mm. She wants to be the protector. Mm. And I loved, I just loved the variety and the way I was able mm. to, to see these perspectives. Thank you. Yeah, and I think that's the thing too, is it can be really easy to, to fall into talking about these issues in a real binary way. But 
it's just so complex and and it and I do remember yeah I remember being at primary school I went to Christmas at primary school where there were like 30 kids from prep to, to grade six in total and and I do remember the CFA coming and telling us you know if a fire comes you've got to get in your woolen boot your woolen top and your boots and stuff and there was always that lingering kind of threat but I remember there was a woman that day and I remember she was so strong and so powerful and 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 so kind and and I it's not black or white but yeah I I'm glad you picked up on that Mm. Another story that I want to mention for a couple of reasons is Out of Range, which is from very late in the collection. Uh, so many of the stories feature wildlife and animals. There is, there is definitely a recurring theme that, um, that I picked up on and enjoyed of, of the animals returning. But in this story, um, we've got uh, this really concise and tragic story that actually highlights some of the impossible choices mm. that fire forces on people. Um, I'm not going to say too much. This this story is a, a paragraph long, so mm. <laughs> I could spoil it in a word. Um, yeah, I mean, you can if, yeah. I, I think that story, oh, sorry, you go. Oh, I just wanted to know, are these these stories of the animals hard to ride? It was it was hard to read. Yeah. Um, I've always loved animals, as simplistic as that sounds. Um, I think, um, for me, that, you know, there's so much you can express through writing about animals and writing about the kind of the power relationships between humans and animals and and the domestication of animals and wild animals and all of that kind of stuff. Um, it wasn't so hard to write because I was hearing those stories about what was happening and I think writing it down almost gives those stories a bit more kind of a place in the world and that makes it a little bit better. And I think... Um, you know, in regards to this um, out-of-range story, there were difficult decisions that needed to be made that people from the city or people who weren't in that situation might look upon the character in out-of-range and think that her decision to to shoot her horses, I'll give it away, <laughs> um, in the face of bushfire was um, maybe an unethical thing, but... In reality, that was one of the kind of things she could do, and um, I wanted to to kind of to show that those difficult decisions and the strengths in the story of of the woman in that story of her doing that, um, and how she was kind of telling everyone afterwards that that was what she had to do, and kind of justifying and. And I think that was something that I wanted to explore in a constant hunt too. Is, is there was so much justifying after after the fires of the decisions you made or didn't make. And I think I think I wanted to show that there there are so many different decisions, and um, it's just so so complex and hard to understand unless unless you're put in that position. And, and I hope I hope the nuance of that kind of mm-hmm. comes through a little bit. This is also a wonderful example of one of the very short but effective stories in the collection. I mentioned it's only a, a paragraph long. It actually, um, it actually brought me to mind of um, something that, that sort of periodically goes around Twitter, which is like the six-word six story oh, and yeah. the six-word horror story. <laughs> and, I mean, since you've given away the ending already... Sorry. I, I can absolutely... Well, this gives me a chance to boil it down for the reader. You you could absolutely win with the, just the five words, the five words that end out of range. 
I couldn't let them burn. Um, that says everything. Yeah. What sort of creative restraint, though, is involved in crafting these stories from a constant hum? Because they, they were some of them were the gems of the collection for me. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I feel really, again, another shout-out to my publisher in that I think that um, it is a bit of a risk to not kind of follow the, you know, um, the usual... 3,000 word stories for, you know, for each story. And um, I think a few of the, the really, I mean, microfiction, I don't feel like microfiction does it justice, but um, kind of come, become a bit of a twee um, name. But I think it really depends on which story it is because some of those stories um, started as 3,000 word stories and mm. they just weren't working and there was just too much stuff in there and... I ended up, you know, just scrapping the rest of it and having it distilled down into a few lines. And it takes a lot of work. It takes, um, obviously, you write 3,000 words and then you chuck them in the bin. So, mm. um, you know, it, t- it takes a lot of work. And other ones, um, you know, I don't do it so much anymore, but I used to use Twitter a lot for microfiction and, and for like flash fiction. And having those kind of boundaries made you really think about what you wanted to put online and... Um, and I'm a really big fan of writers like Josephine Lowe, who's got a beautiful co- earlier collection. She does a lot of really short, um, powerful, powerful stories that really, really hit you in the chest. And, and I think, I think that's what I love reading. So to be able to try and do it myself has been um, a really cool thing. I think people can listen back to this part of the interview to get uh, to get a real sense of of that expression, "kill your darlings." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it can be freeing too, you know. Mm. Yeah. Um, one one thing about a constant hum is it's a very visceral, it's a very sensory novel. There are the sights, the sounds, the smells. They jump off the page um, to immerse the readers in these stories of loss. Now, one particular struck me uh, uh, recurring through the stories, and that is the hum, the humming. Mm. I'm, I'm I'm actually quite con- um, conscious of the the hum <laughs> in my headphones right now. Yeah. Through the stories, generators hum, wasps hum. Sometimes yeah. it's just this simple feeling in the air that you can't escape from. Can you tell me a little bit about the hum and its significance? Yeah, it's really a hard one to boil down. Um, I think um, being someone who's been anxious in the past and someone who who kind of sees the hum as both a positive thing and a negative thing, you know, it's, it's that kind of hum of anxiety and kind of self-doubt that I... Um, with the writing process and all of that stuff, but then it's also that harm of, of not to sound, again, too twee, but of, of life and how it just goes on, you know, it just keeps going on despite things like bushfire, despite things like heartbreak or loss or, or all different kinds of things. It's it's also quite a beautiful thing as well. And, um, and I think, I mean, it also links into, into the aftermath of bushfire and how... Um, that kind of white noise feeling of, of having everything kind of the rug pulled from under your feet and not knowing um, what's going on. You know, it, it links into that. It links into, for me, um, there's a lot of stuff about gender in the book and it links into that constant pressure and um, like what you mentioned before, and I really appreciate it, that kind of um, you're always kind of on guard as a woman because you're, you're not really sure about that the male gaze and about all of the stuff that I was kind of talking about in Kangaroo Poor and 
And I guess the kind of the exhausting nature of that, and that's mm. something that I think it comes up in in quite a few different stories. And um, and then also that you know, in a more positive sense, it's about it's about regrowth. It's about despite everything, you know, um, turning to ash. It's there's life returns, and um, you know, the amount of energy that you that I felt, you know, watching the wattle sprout back and watching birds return and even though it took years and years and years and it's still um, happening today it's it's a really a really beautiful and exciting thing and um, it's a constant and um, also the constant um, presence of this book in my life in that it's really really scaffolded me scaffolded me against so much and um, I'm really grateful for that and I'm kind of sad to see it go out into the world but you've got to let these things go so I'm speaking with Alice Bishop. Uh, you're on Final Draft on 2SCR 107.3, and we're discussing a constant hum. Uh, and as I mentioned, Alice's collection uh, features nearly 50 stories. We've, we've really only touched on not even a half dozen of them yet, Alice. Um, and it's, it's so hard to know how to end this conversation because there's so much I want to talk about. But I thought maybe I could bring us to a story. I think it's the second story in the collection, so very early in the collection, just a spark. And this is, yeah. this is Linda's story, and it takes us to the courtroom where a man is being tried for, for lighting what would become a horrific bushfire. And in Linda's search, she's trying to find some kind of understanding at this trial, but it also seemed to speak to the impossibility of fathoming the enormity of the tragedy, to putting some sort of rational framework on it. What was happening in this story, and do you think it's it's possible to ever understand tragedy of of such enormity? Does it even help us to try to? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I, I think that's that kind of is a good summary for the book because I don't know if you ever can um, grapple with something like that, and I think about that with what we were talking about earlier with. You know, I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in a war zone or to be fleeing a country and how you kind of grapple with that. But um, so the second story in the collection is obviously about arson. And I, I wrote it oh, quite a few years ago. And then um, I read Chloe Hooper's beautiful book, The Arsonist, which um, which most listeners will know focuses on um, Black Saturday. And um, it was really um, framed from the arsonist's kind of not necessarily point of view, but it, it really kind of showed the reader both sides of the story. And um, I think, <clears throat> I think in in Just a Spark, I was trying to focus on how she was going to rebuild after losing so many people in her family, and how how you would how you would grapple with going to court. And um, I have a have a a close friend who just lost her cousin Natalina Ancock in um, in Melbourne in in uh, what was allegedly a brutal murder, and we went to court for that process. and And I think it, it's impossible it's impossible to put a framework on these issues, but we have to you know we have to go through the legal system, we have to um, face up to people in court, and I don't think those stories are, uh, come through as much as as there is a big focus on the kind of perpetrator or on the on on the disaster or on the yeah. on the, um, the the thing that inflicts the trauma and at the expense of that um, some really important stories kind of fall by the wayside and um, I hope that answers your question. 
I think that does. Um, <laughs> I think I think you've you've started a conversation there about some some really important uh, issues around the way we frame narrative and particularly who we centre in in narrative mm. and the ways we forget other people that perhaps we can take up at another time. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and I think equally it's it's important to to focus on both sides. But, mm. um, but yeah. I just yeah, and I I think I think you're absolutely right. We sometimes we tend to forget the other stories for the sensational mm. headline, mm. Um, and I think probably what's important to acknowledge here is that for many readers, readers like myself, they'll know nothing of firsthand of what's being written in a constant hum, and that is good. I guess we probably wouldn't mm. wish this on people if it mm. doesn't have to happen, but. Mm. A constant hum is such an amazing, beautiful, important insight. So I, I would really encourage people to get out and experience this collection. I'm speaking with Alice Bishop. She is the author of the collection A Constant Hum. Alice, thank you, thank you so much for all the time you've taken today. Thank you, Andrew. It's been an absolute pleasure, and thanks for your, yeah, your really thoughtful questions. That's it for this great conversation with Alice Bishop. Alice's latest collection of short stories is A Constant Hum, and it's out now through text publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. And if you click subscribe in your podcast app, you're going to get a new Great Conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I am going to be back with more Great Conversations from Final Draft, but until then, happy reading.